welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, everyone. I'm Karin Jervert, the arts editor at Madden America. And today I will be talking with Elena Vianoska, the curator of a really exciting upcoming conference online and in Berlin titled Madness, Fighting for Justice in Mental Health. I'll also be talking later in this podcast with three artists from a panel at this conference titled Art and Survivor Empowerment. The conference was created by the Disruption Network Lab and investigates systems of mental health care and support, focusing on prevailing discourses and practices, biases and, and inequality. It also explores the possibilities of a mental health system which puts human rights and justice at the center of its practice. The Disruption Lab Network itself examines the intersection of politics, technology, and society, and exposes the misconduct and wrongdoing of the powerful. The conference is being held in Berlin, as well as streamed online for free, November 25th through the 27th. You can view the conference live at disruptionlab.org. Later in this podcast, we will be interviewing artists Dali Sen, Anika Krobetchek, and Marcello Lusana. But I wanted to talk briefly with Elena first so she can tell us more about the conference and how it came about. Elena is a freelance curator and cultural manager and curated this year's conference for Disruption Network Lab. Welcome, Elena. Uh, Hello, Karen, and thanks for inviting me. Thank you for being here. Um, First off, I just wanted you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) As you introduced me, my name is Elena Velianovska. And as you mentioned, I'm a curator and cultural manager. Uh, Since 2019, uh, I'm working in the Disruption Network Lab as a senior project manager, uh, as well as a curator. Uh, I'm coming originally from North Macedonia, and I have previously worked as a curator in Contrapunkt from Skopje, where together with uh, my colleague uh, Iskra Geshoska, we founded and for five years we were running the Festival for Critical Culture, Creek. This is among other cultural and artistic projects, of course. So another thing maybe about me is that in 2006 I co-founded uh, Line Initiative and Movement. Uh, that was a platform for new media art and technology. So I was also running it as an artistic director until 2010. Uh, my experience comes largely from the non-profit sector, from the civil sector, And even though for many independent projects, of course, I have collaborated with a lot of institutions uh, over the years, but this is, yeah, kind of my main uh, interest. And, yeah, my educational background is in art history and archaeology, which feels a little bit far, far away now (laughs) from what I do at the moment. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And um, first, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what the Disruption Lab Network does. Disruption Network Lab, as you mentioned, is a non-profit organization based in Berlin. Uh, it is founded in 2014 by Tatiana Batikeli, who is also currently the artistic director of the organization. And uh, what we do is uh, providing platform of events and research focusing on the intersection of politics, technology and society. Uh, as you mentioned, our objective is strengthening freedom of speech and exposing the misconduct and wrongdoing of the powerful. So how do we do this? Uh, During one working year, let's say, this translates into organizing three interdisciplinary and international conferences per year, followed by two workshops uh, with each conference, and then six meetups, two for each conference as well. So the conferences are usually proposing a topic, usually at the interface of uh, scholarship and politics, human rights, technology, justice, and art, whereas the meetups uh, focus more on building the local community around the same topics. So we are really addressing a wide range of topics. I just wanted to mention a few. Uh, For example, like in the past one or two years, we discussed uh, gender transitioning, AI-powered military programs and targeted killings, conference on whistleblowing, for the whistleblowing anthology that we actually published last year, or the conference uh, behind the mask uh, about whistleblowing in the pandemic. Uh, That said, (laughs) we developed really work that advocates for the globally marginalized and follow the motto, uncovering systems of power and injustice. 
So the topics are just pointing at the depth of the problem in every field that we are uh, working on. In order to achieve our goals, uh, we collaborate a lot with whistleblowers, investigative journalists, human rights activists, hackers and artists. And uh, the listeners can find a lot more about our work on our website, disruptionlab.org, but also check past events on YouTube channels. And uh, also they can download the book uh, from our website if they uh, would like to. That's wonderful. Yeah. And this year you decided that the theme that you would be focusing on would be madness and mental health. Um, Can you tell us more about how you conceived of that theme and how it was curated over time? I'd love to learn more about why this is what you chose to do this year. Yeah, the conference uh, comes with a little bit of a genealogy. As I said, we work, we we have years behind us. This is the 28th conference of the lab, uh, working with marginalized groups and difficult topics uh, that inevitably take the toll of the people that are involved. So this was a topic that, in a way, Tatiana had in the folders for a long time, uh, and we wanted to address it Especially, yeah, like uh, the groups that we work with, like whistleblowers, they're really affected by by also mental health, uh, the whole mental health sector, among other things. So uh, she was thinking initially also of this topic as a potential conference, uh, also inspired by the patient, patients movement globally and the Med Pride in Italy. But uh, I think the, this awareness amplified with the effects of the pandemic and isolation had on people made us finally address it and devote a full conference uh, uh, and other events around it. Uh, In terms of curating, then she offered me to curate this uh, conference. Then I decided because I I was really thinking like I'm coming from the field of critical culture as uh, well as I had in mind the, the work of the lab that we do. So I decided to focus the topic around the conversations about injustice and human rights, uh, conversations that put the people affected and their rights at the center of the discussion. So we decided to, you know, really answer on these main two questions. What does it mean to have a just mental health care system and who has access to it, but also who decides who is labeled as mad? So I'm viewing this topic very critically. And by choosing speakers who are uncovering the systemic oppression, talking about racism and the need to decolonize psychiatry, address the big pharma, corporations and media, over-medication. These are all huge topics and discuss state violence and the judicial right of the people affected. But uh, whereas the whole conference focuses on criticism, uh, that should eventually lead to improvement of the mental health care systems and leading to the improvement of the livelihood of the people that are affected. But also I want to mention uh, that in all all our criticism, uh, I'm realizing that I'm valuing quite a lot how much has been done so far, and that we can can have this conversation at all on this level. So I think here now, at this moment, we will just stop, again, continue criticizing, but also thinking of how much more uh, we can do and what can be done. So last but not the least, I would say, is my personal motivation and interest in this topic because uh, through close family members that are affected, I, yeah, over the years I have built an insight into the mental health care systems in Macedonia, but also I've, I'm just reading a lot and following, so uh, the, the whole problematic was not uh, completely unfamiliar to me. So this is where my interest and my knowledge as a curator, but also in how the system uh, works comes from. So I would just add maybe lastly, last that since the pandemic kicked in, also private motives, I also started embedding the healthcare topics into my curatorial work. So this is where also the decision to maybe uh, take the, to curate this conference came uh, and yeah, to focus more, more precisely on the mental health care. So it sounds like a lot of very important reasons, the pandemic, personal uh, investment there, these huge issues of human rights and systemic oppression show up in your previous conferences, as well as realizing that mental health plays such an important role in justice. Um, 
it's uh, I've heard some people say that the the seeing psychiatric oppression if you don't see psychiatric oppression you're not seeing the full picture of systemic oppression and I see in your the schedule of panels and talks that you're doing the keynote speakers there's a there's these themes these huge important cultural societal economic themes of human rights systemic oppression state violence decolonization but art making plays a seemingly central role as well at the conference and you have a panel of artists who we will be talking with shortly in this podcast um, who are focusing on art, on art and survivor empowerment. So, of course, this was something I'm very interested in as the arts editor at Madden America. Why was it so important for you to include the arts in this conference? Yeah, as I said, yeah, we, we really combine uh, very, yeah, very intersectional, uh, intersectorial approach in our conferences in general. But, uh, uh, yeah, also, art is my home, <laughs> quotation mark, field, uh, art and culture. So I really believe that uh, artistic language can complement and add a completely different dimension to the discussion about mental health. So here I mean uh, really arts in its widest sense, like all the formats like dance, performance, movement, painting that are much more embodied practices, but also more conceptual forms like video art, film, or sound. So the art can diversify the vocabulary we have at hand when discussing mental health, I think. And also um, when we are discussing the experiences that the affected people have, uh, the artistic practices are an obvious way of making these conditions uh, experienceable, <laughs> let's say, or or bringing them closer to, to how it feels. So, yeah, art for me simply uh, is the, the one that has the role in this uh, conversation, that has the capacity to give shape to feelings and emotions. Uh, another aspect is the that we will discuss on, the, on this panel, and uh, is art used as a therapy, as a common tool in, in treatment, so here the artistic practices can serve as a coping strategy in themselves. So in the panel, both perspectives will be discussed hand in hand because they are, yeah, the panelists are also experienced in this, some of them. And this will be illustrated through the work of the speakers on the panel that uh, you will <laughs> also present. Uh, they present three approaches in art making, to art making, which are different in their format, style and thematic focus but they're all deeply insightful, subversive, and transformative. So for me, this was really crucial part of, of having this aspect at the conference. And this is, I want to just mention that it's not only the art uh, panel is one thing, where we will present uh, in-depth artistic uh, approaches and strategies, but also uh, in the same day, we will open the conference with a performance uh, with Marcello that you will also speak later on. And uh, we will show a movie uh, that is uh, called Face, uh, Faces of an Exhibition that actually works with people who are experiencing hearing voices and experiencing psychosis and schizophrenia. So they're also going through the process of uh, uh, the creation of a festival that took place in Berlin last year that was called Mental Festival for Schizophrenia. So we, were, we are also like including these uh, practices that are rare and uh, quite valuable for the conversation. That's so wonderful. And I'm so looking forward to speaking to the three artists. Um, and as a final question, um, you've touched on this a tiny bit, um, but I'd love to hear you expand on your thoughts around how do you see art making contributing to the fight for justice in mental health? Yeah, <laughs> it's not a simple answer, uh, as any answer with art, basically, it's not simple, because sometimes the, yeah, the conclusions come late, some years later, maybe. But I think, uh, yeah, we need the arts in this constellation to achieve a more just and compassionate approach to mental health, as I also said earlier. To me, art uh, can be straightforward, critical, political, bold and subversive, and um, even though this is not often maybe seen as such from other fields, but there are many societal topics that are really discussed in the artistic field much earlier than any other field. 
So it is necessary to learn to pay attention and develop the, this kind of shared understanding of the individual experience uh, uh, to, so then we can come to the big uh, general picture. So in this respect, the art is not go only giving an opportunity to process personal experiences, but uh, art can also be a vehicle in the survivor's fight for social justice and self-empowerment. So somehow this is where I see the, the, the role and the connection with the conference topic. Thank you so much, Elena. I'm so excited for this conference. I will be watching live online, um, and I am so looking forward to um, all the wonderful conversations, and it is important work that you and the Disruption Network Lab are doing, so thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Karen, really. Thank you so much for showing an interest uh, to cover the conference and to promote it because, uh, yeah, I don't think there is a more fitting medium for, for this topic. Wonderful. Thank you. To talk a little bit more about this topic, we invited the artists from one of the panels at this conference. Moderated by Lily Martin from the Atlantis University of Arts and Social Sciences, the panel focuses on art and survivor empowerment. And we'll talk with these artists about their artistic methodology while working with different mental health conditions by using research, humor, or art therapy as means of expression and framing proactive practices. I'll introduce each of these artists and I'll start off with Dali Sen. Dali Sen has a brain of ill repute. Because of this, she is an internationally renowned writer, filmmaker, artist, and activist. She is a working class, brown, queer person who is interested in the disability and madness given to us by the world. She wants to disrupt the systems that produce that programming called oppression, not through Trojan horse viruses, but with my little ponies on acid with a little sadness in their hearts. And you can learn more about Dolly Sen at dollysen.com. Dolly, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So as a way of further a further introduction, I wanted to ask you, especially about Bedlam, your project Bedlam. Um, this is a project, uh, it's part of another project called Section 136, uh, yeah, 136, uh, where you have conversations about madness with people on a bed filled with um, stuffed lambs. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, I've been a filmmaker for about 20 years. In, in fact, I did my degree in film. And I have tried to get films on mental health by survivors onto like terrestrial TV. And it, it, it hasn't happened. And also when I've watched a lot of films, it's people who usually have a connect to, connection to mental health that have been interviewed. But I was actually interested in what the ordinary person on the street thought about mental health madness and what drives people mad and how we can help people. Um, so I did two um, two bedlams. One in actually Bedlam. I did it in Bethlehem Hospital, which its nickname is Bedlam. And I interviewed mostly artists. And some of them did have a connection to mental health. So they were very interested in the kind of political side of uh, mental health and why people were driven mad and how the how the world drives people mad and their kind of their answers to people's distress was partly um, political and making social changes but then I did one uh, in my then hometown of Great Yarmouth which is a quite a poor deprived seaside town in Norfolk in um, England so I did basically uh, propped up the bed with uh, lots of cuddly sheep on a high street and invited the passers-by to come to talk to me about madness. They had a slightly different approach, but almost everyone understood that things were like, for example, a lot of the answers when I asked what is driving people mad, a few, more than two people said Boris Johnson. Um, so it, it's uh, it, and people talking about lack of secure housing, poverty, uh, discrimination. So they understood that, which surprised me because I would would have thought you know a lot of people would have said oh it's some something wrong with the brain because that's the the story that's put out by psychiatry it's all in the brain um, and like I said it's I don't think of uh, 
distress as a broken brain. I think of it as a broken heart. And so, yeah, it was, it was an experiment that kind of confirmed what I thought um, of, you know, what madness is. Um, I mean, there were, there were people who thought the answers to helping people was to put, invest more money in the mental health system. Um, but mostly it was people saying that the person's situation and uh, experience needed to be changed and it, they couldn't change it. It had to be a political or economic thing. It's actually really wonderful to hear because, you know, you you, uh, you work in um, this field of, of activism and, and you sort of feel that the medical model is so pervasive and the narrative is so ingrained that if you were to talk to the public, the answer would always be, you know, there's something wrong with their brain. But you're saying that when you did the Bedlam Project, from the 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 general public was actually and and maybe the way you frame the question too what is driving us mad like that was um a great prompt for them to really uh, it's just such a wonderful um thing to hear that 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 they actually did name oppression they named housing trouble they named you know um these ways that <clears throat> mental health is not exactly encouraged in our social and economic environment so that's really wonderful thank you so much for um telling us a little bit more and I'm sure we'll hear more about it as we do um, some more of the interviews and I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and introduce Anika Krebetchek. Anika is a multidisciplinary artist and curator working artistically through mental experiences such as dissociation, trauma, compulsion, as well as its effects on identity and perception of the world. She learned how to express herself and transform emotions and experiences through working for years with and learning from art therapists. In her curatorial work and collaborative projects, she applies inclusive approaches and aims to build artistic spaces in order to create an empathic form of education around inclusion and mental health. You can find out more about Anika at anikakrb.com, and that's one word. Anika, thank you so much for being here. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. Glad to have you. Um, so I read something on your website when I was looking um, through that really jumped out at me as something I wanted to ask you to expand on. Um, and uh, can you tell us more about what you said when you said, without dream and intuition, nothing real can move? So... I would actually go back to being a child myself. I was um, very much absorbed by my dreamy way of perceiving the world around me. And also since then, since, to, since today, um, I'm always getting lost in structures, in the branching of a tree, in the glittery surface of water and stuff. And um, so this is really an essential part of my personality which is also enjoyable, but I also know drifting away um, or a similar feeling, um, which is less enjoyable. And then drifting away comes as a um, freezing reaction to triggering situations, and it's less controllable, and it impedes my daily life. But through an artistic perspective, I built a relationship between um, my dreaminess and my dissociative disorder. And to explore this artistically releases so much tension inside of me. And it's it's such a beautiful act because through the connection, like through connecting um, the dissociative state of with um, dreaminess or the concept of dreaming will put this disorder outside of the frame of illness for me. And... Um, this artistic method is, I think it's linked to what a quote set means. Um, you can also see this in a project I do. It's called Amoeba. And for Amoeba, I use the concept of unicellular beings and their way to move forward as a metaphor for psychological growth based on trauma. And in this work, movement in the sense of transformation is a task of the unconscious. So this is also what the quote says. Every outer movement evolves from an unconscious movement, like dreaming or intuition. And I think there's also something interesting about intuition because even though I think 99% or something um, of the things we do, we do intuitively, in capitalist societies, we are very much focused on rationality. 
Um, and this is also reflected in the mental health system. For example, when I did behavioral therapy, I learned how to analyze my behavior rationally a lot. And in many other forms of therapy, I did lots of tabular analyzing. And actually, I have to say I love analyzing as well. But still, there's so much lost if processes that are tickling the unconscious um, are neglected. And I think art and art therapy holds a perspective, a kind of um, perception that is not necessarily rational to think. And that's the reason why I love making art and I want to make art as my profession because I don't know any other job actually <laughs> where I could uh, use my psychological condition of being a dreamy, intuitive being and also my so-called illnesses are so much of use and are actually an artistical resource. So, um, yeah, I think real stuff in the end is like whatever real stuff is or reality is, but um, in the sense of something physically manifesting is something that will always be interpreted and um, perceived and understood in new ways through our unconscious part all the time. So this sentence tries to describe that and also um, brings up the perspective, like pointing on the ability to use the act of dreaming and intuition to create and change reality. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. I've never heard such a wonderful exploration, uh, you know, um, of an explanation of, of what art is, because I, I feel similarly uh, to you of, of how this uh, works in us and, and how the opportunities and possibilities of it are um, for moving trauma. And also, I love um, the... the way that art can hold us as as complete beings and different and diverse beings which is is just so wonderful so thank you for that i'm going to introduce marcello lusana marcello lusana is a research associate and coordinator of the project social interaction through sound feedback sentire since 2012 he has been a composer and programmer for different projects such as motion composer and metabody he lives in Berlin and produces computer music for audiovisual performances, dance, theater, and live electronics. He is currently a PhD candidate at Humboldt University of Berlin on the subject of interactive music and body perception. You can find out more about Marcello's project Sentire at sentire.me. Um, thank you so much for being here, Marcello. Thank you for the invitation. Um, so... Again, as a, a, a way of introducing you a little further, I wanted to ask you, your focus as a composer has been on interactive systems. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Uh, yes. I mean, um, about 10 years ago, I started to yeah, discover different way of interactive with music um, because yeah, historically computer music uh, or electronic music has been always um seen as detached from body movement uh because we don't have a direct interaction between the movement and the sound generated um but uh, this uh, this kind of connection uh was reestablished since the 80s when uh, in experimental arts uh, both performance or sound uh, but also other yeah more performance uh, art started to use different kind of sensor to connect body movement or um, biological activity of the body with, for example, sound generation. And uh, I personally found it very interesting and motivating this way of reconnecting the body with sound. Uh, um, because I think it's really at the basic of our um, way to interact with a world, not necessarily uh, to work as a composer. So we usually move and, and hear some sound, and that's also how we relate to reality, or one way to, re to relate to reality. And at the same time, I was very fascinated because um, this way of connecting body and sound generation also give you extra information about your perception, your body perception. And um, I also can relate to what Dolly and Anika said. Uh, on one hand, uh, Dolly mentioned that um, 
psychological uh, problems are often seen by psychiatrists uh, more related only to the brain, but it's actually a more embodied uh, issue. So um, it, it would be very, very limiting to look at the, only at the brain. So if we instead uh, focus on body perception, and that's what many art of therapy also do independently now from uh, um, interactive sound, um, that's a way to get back to your body and get into this uh, relationship between body and mind that in the end is only an, an abstraction. We, are, we always function, we always understand reality as a whole. Um, and yeah, to me, connecting sound with movement uh, was very interesting also from this possibly therapeutic usage, meaning... As a, as a gate, let's say, to body perception and at the same time to uh, um, therapy. And, um, and um, yeah, the second thing related to what Annika mentioned was uh, um, also how, how we can uh, um, connect this, uh, let's say, more dreamy human beings that we are in such a also very functional and very uh, goal-oriented society. Uh, and, um, and I think I see this as a, as a challenge for ourselves or for other people who get in touch with, with such uh, artworks. Um, yeah, to question, so, so to question also the, the human functionality and the capitalistic society. So, um, of course, it's a, it's a long path and it's very personal and uh, it's definitely not straightforward, but um, to me, that's a strong motivation behind uh, uh, also my project. Thank you so much, Marcello. Yeah, and I want to hear more about um, uh, Sentire, um, uh, and we'll talk when we're going to open up a little bit and talk with the three of you together about some some things, some questions that I have um, um, about your art practice and the projects that you're working on. So I'm excited to hear a little bit more about Centuri, which is uh, one of the the interactive um, sound piece uh, works that you do as therapy. Um, so um, we'll hear more about that. So. Let's dig into some art questions here um, with the three of you. Um, the first one that I have is that something that, uh, as I was doing research, just learning more about you all as artists, was uh, that the thing that is common among all three of you is that, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong, um, that the that you sort of see art as a practice. Um, that can and a process that can transform distress, and I'm personally um, really curious to hear more about that process and um, have you all speak to how it manifests in your practice, um, because I, I agree with that 100%. I think art is an absolutely transformative process in so many different ways, and. Um, uh, I'd love to hear more from each of you about that question. Well, for me, it's kind of a rec reclamation of power. It's changing the, the narrative of the story because I, this is what I say to people. I mean, I, I'm a person who's experienced oppression and abuse. And those were the, those were the things that wrote my life story. And your creativity and art making is the way to, you know, take control of that pen. But it's also... In a lot of um, situations, if you're labelled mad, you're not allowed to tell the truth about truth about anything. So the artist, you know, enables you to tell tell the truth about about yourself. But also, it's it's like to, I I feel like I have to take on the world and change things. So art is also my kind of shield to be able to face the world. So yeah, it's it does a lot of things actually. Do you think that the um the the ability uh, to hold and express truth is a core aspect of transformation? I think so. I think I mean I, this, art is the only way I can tell the truth and have people accept it, which it, it shouldn't be, but that's the, yeah, that's the way that's the world we're living in at the moment, unfortunately. 
Yeah. So the act of telling the truth and being able to hold and tell the truth, but then also having the reception on the other end be compassionate and non-judgmental. Um, I would like to give an example regarding this getting control back thing, maybe in a different perspective, but um, I kind of try to bring my therapeutic process last year on the stage in a quite direct way. So I was doing a um, a reading performance, which was based on diaries entries of myself, which I did the last 10 years containing texts and poems I wrote down in my diary to get along violence experiences and uh, also sexual, physical and mental abuse. And the central point in this performance was that I would always... Um, Uh, experience re-traumatization while reading these en diary entries on my own. And I felt like bringing this intimate and also ugly moment on the stage and framing it into an artistic act would kind of give me control back over the situation, um, which was also a little bit of a risk because, yeah, I couldn't know before. I could also just have a flashback on the stage and that's it. <laughs> But um, actually, I had a really powerful and therapeutic moment with this performance. And I also got resonated from the audience, then them having a therapeutic moment with the performance as well. And I think this also brings light to the fact that illnesses, so-called illnesses, um, which are linked to certain experiences, such as um, trauma as a result of abusement, are framed in societal contexts and linked to structures of power and hegemonic structures. And that's why I think that making so-called illnesses visible through art is not only an act of self-therapy, but also always points to societal and systematic issues and also stands in an activistic and justice-related context. Absolutely, yeah. Um, thank you for that. Yeah, the individual transformation becomes collective transformation through the art project pro process. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, in a similar um, perspective, of course, in a very different way of performing and acting, but there, um, the intention of Sentire was also in this direction because the, um, so the, the, the way we usually perform is uh, a performer is on the stage and invite Uh, she invites one person from the audience and they interact together for about 10 minutes. And then next person this whole for about one hour. And we always, uh, so the sound changes depending on the distance and touch between these two participants. And um, we always wanted to keep it this way, meaning we could have theoretically an extra sensor that detects the individual movement of one person, but we always we decided to keep it simpler this way and the sound reacts based on both persons. And this means you have to, to, to be conscious of what the other person is doing and how it's relating to yourself. And, uh, you know, if both persons are not moving or not changing the distance, uh, but only individually moving, nothing, nothing changes in the sound. And uh, so it was also meant like that to, to create, let's say, more empathy and more connect connection between the two people interacting. And, uh, and this, um, so the performance was more open in, from this point of view as art all often is. So art uh, therapy in a broader sense. Um, But it has been used in a couple therapy study, this system, for example. And in that case, was more specifically used to uh, um, whether talk about feelings and then act. For example, I don't know, the two, the couple just had a fight and they had a therapy session and they had to, as an exercise given by the therapist, they have to negotiate their distance. Uh, so it, it can work in from both point of views, it can become a tool for therapy, but it can be also a, a tool for exploration and uh, um, yeah, for exploring the other person uh, or the, the connection with another person. 
so I wanted to ask you more about this concept of um, art as activism and art as serving to um, contribute to human rights and justice in the mental health system. And I want to first ask you about how this your perspective, this perspective of tra- art as transformation, how this um, informs your projects in mental health. So we did talk a little bit about it, but let's expand a little bit more about um, how how your projects are being informed by, by this transformation, um, this way that art is transformational um, and specific to how it's engaging with the mental health community. So for me, as my development of becoming an artist is very much linked to my psychological working process. Working without means finding translations of inner psychic movements, um, of emotions, sensations and impressions. But it's also holding something I think other disciplines can not for me. So finding a language for things that I couldn't say without art, especially being a survivor and, um, and an artist, I think mental experiences, especially trauma, need ways to be expressed and processed. But also trauma taught me that not every memory can be approached directly. Sometimes you have to find ways around it. And I think art can deliver these ways to express feelings linked to trauma through abstraction or through metaphors. And it can be visual or coded in poems or in a movement of a performance or whatever. Um, But as I learned how to work artistically, especially in my time working with an art therapist. Of course, art therapeutical approaches and its methods are very essential in my art making process. So um, my working way is fundamentally marked by process orientation, by using intuitive and raw expressions and also being bold with opportunities to self-reflect through your work. But it also becomes more and more important to me to contextualize my work and um, make it comprehensible and, yes, contextualize it in social structures. Um, Because my aim in the end is to create emotional reactions, especially emotional empathy, like Marcello already said, um, and in the end, in order to destigmatize um, about so-called mental illnesses. And I think destigmatization is one of the most important processes for uh, systematic change and structural change in a social way. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to ask you really quick about art therapy. I'm curious um, to know where you think that field is right now um, as far as um, being aligned uh with um, alternative views and uh, progressively, you know, towards human rights and things like that. Because art therapy is a, is a, you know, an institutional uh, thing that, that can be subject to the same systemic oppression that other psychiatric um, models can. So I wonder, um, you know, how you see that, how you, where you see the art therapy uh, model right now. I think I cannot give like a very specific answer to that because I'm not an art therapist and I'm not really like in the research field of that. I just experienced art therapy and that's also like seven years ago. So there had been some major changes maybe. Um, But I do know a bit about like the connection to outsider art, so-called outsider art. And I think this this whole art field of everyone who's marginalized in the in the art industry um, is still very much in a conflict field of discrimination and inclusion. It's not really like there's a lot of happening and way more visibility, but still it's always like the separational system. Like we have a term, especially for people being outside of the artist world. And that's kind of an empowering process to have their own like category, but it's still a category and stuff like that. So I don't, I I know that's not really like regarding the art therapy thing, but um, this was really an individual experience for me. So I, I don't want to say something which I don't know about. Yeah. No, no, it's it's really interesting. I mean, uh, the the idea of outsider art and and all that, and um, the 
recognition and, and naming the idea that art can sometimes be the art making can be it can create exclusion um, because of different um, ideas of what is an artist, what is art, what is good art, what is bad art. You know, all these things can create these um, ways of excluding certain uh, groups and marginalizing certain artists. Um, and that's uh, a really important thing to to keep in mind as you know the the opening you know this process to all people um as you know i would say as it kind of was from the beginning of the human race i mean art was always just for everyone um so somehow we got a little lost in maybe the capitalist system around you know excluding and making an, an elite thing so um it's a it's a very interesting conversation to have as well um and I, I want to give a little more time to Dolly Sen and Marcello too to to um, talk a little bit more about um, the question of mental health, uh, working within mental health with this this perspective of art as transformational. Um, this is not related to that, but it's kind of a little bit of a response to what was being said before. When I started out as an artist, um, I was uh, invited to an outsider art fair to sell my stuff. And I had the criticism that my work didn't look mad enough. They said you, it doesn't. You don't look. You, you know, you don't look mad enough. Your art doesn't look mad enough, so people won't be interested. So it's it's also what, what yeah it's it is kind of the it's, it is the elitism and it's one group of people dictating what the other should be, which you know, like you said, art is for everyone. And, you know, I, I, and somebody else in the same fair said your art is too intelligent. To be in this, and I just thought that was so disrespectful. But anyway, um, yeah. Well, I think um, art to me is it kind of explores what it is to be human. It is, it, it is, it, it human is you know humanity is art and art is humanity. And I think psychiatry is at the moment is quite inhumane, and so I'm trying to get the two to meet in the middle. But I actually was an activist before I was an artist, and I was standing outside the Mortley Hospital, which is a very famous psychiatric hospital in London, where I was the patient, with a uh, placard saying, you know, abuses are happening here. And I realised that people past me, passing me on the street were just thinking, this is just a loony. And I was having absolutely no impact or influence on the people who are running the place. So I, And then I realised... I kind of did a few things, but I realised art and humour was the way to to communicate to the public what was happening in a way they could understand and relate to, but also um, using art and humour actually had some, you know, they, it was hard to ignore. It's hard for the, the, the heads of the hospital to ignore me doing a TripAdvisor review of their hospital, for example. Um, so, yeah, it was... So yeah, the the art came after the activism. So it you know it just it's it's a great way to communicate, and it's a it's also a thing that it, in some contexts can't be ignored. Yeah, I think there is something about the context of art um, that that uh, creates something more accessible, something you know more relatable, something that can uh, really um, perpetuate empathy and and understanding, um, which is what you're what you know you kind of try to elicit when you're when you're trying to make social change is for people to see the abuse that's happening there um so art artists creating some kind of context that makes that more accessible well i think it relates to what i was mentioning before so the transformation that uh, was aimed in the these artworks in theory was um was really to let the participant explore by themselves directly. That's why we wanted to engage the audience um, and try out uh, together with another person this connection with a sound. Also because uh, um, I think proximity is yeah, it's not really a sense. It's not really seen as a common as one of the five senses, but it is somehow a sense, is a perception that we exp we perceive all the time, actually. But usually we don't give so much 
attention to is whether uh, or we we do uh, give some attention, but in some specific context. For example, uh, I don't know for for sex is something that proximity and, and touch has a lot of importance. But otherwise, it's usually whether something professional. For example, when we do some kind of uh, physical therapy. Or uh, um, or is something comfortable, uncomfortable? Someone getting too too close to us, keeping a certain distance, and so on. Um, the person who actually explore a lot uh, this uh, sense uh, uh, are, for example, dancers or performers. I mean, for a dancer, it's totally normal to play all the time with uh, distance with other uh, dancers or performers, and. Um, so yeah, with Sentir, we we hope to give uh, to open this door or perception, let's call it like this, for the participants, and uh, yeah, give a bit of a hint uh, to what is there to explore, even without this system, because you can explore it uh, every day, uh, any moment, and um, yeah, so give just a bit of this hint in this direction and hope that people explore more their body perception and that um, as I said before for me is strongly con body perception is strongly connected with therapy and also mental health and um, so that's a bit the transformative uh, potential that I see in Sentire. Yeah, it's it's almost like I'm I'm seeing it as a, a bit of like a, a door that can be opened, um, one of many that that for people to explore their own emotions, their own relationship to the world, their relationship to their body, their relationship to other people's bodies, and all these things connect to how their um, their relationship with the world is 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 healed or 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 healing or in the process of healing, and um, in effect in affecting their mental health. So it's a wonderful, um, another way that, that people can, um, travel that path towards healing, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking, uh, like thinking out loud at this moment, like I remember there's this book called, I think it's called the silent language and it was about, um, uh, nonverbal communication, um, and I remember reading it way back when I studied communications in college and, uh, the, the amount of communications that's happening in a nonverbal way, like with space and proximity and things like that is actually quite profound and quite immense. So, um, it's a very rich part of the human experience to explore as far as how it relates to healing. So. Yes, actually, the, the book is from Edward Hall. That was actually the person who uh, um, coined the word uh, proxemics. Uh, proxemics is the mixture of, uh, it's basically the study of distance between um, humans, but in, in the case of Hall was meant also for architecture and urbanistic. But uh, yeah, now it's an established term to to talk about uh, um, uh, distance and also the cultural value of that. So not only the physical distance, but how we perceive distance based on age, on uh, a cultural background, and of course, is as is the subject of all this conversation is strong, strongly related also to our mental state and. Uh, and I would say, especially in the case of different condition uh, of uh, uh, mental health, uh, the perception is strongly uh, uh, different also between individuals. Uh, and um, so I think it's very important so to talk about, to see distance from this more complex way and not just a, a measurement in centimeters. Yeah, and... Um, uh this reminds me, uh, jumping to an, another book that I read called Healing Spaces, which is about that architectural way that we create institutions of healing, like hospitals. Um, they didn't talk much about mental hospitals, but I, I'm working on a project actually with people in Berlin right now, um, Sound and Psych, around um, how sound environments affect our mental health and how mental institutions 
are built in a certain way and and create certain sounds and um, affect how we sound um, and what sounds we're we're um, comfortable making. What you know, um, if we're allowed to listen to music or you know things like this, the, the restricted sound in, a, in an environment that is connected to the power dynamic in that situation. So I'm just noting that um, all of these ways that we don't normally think about healing are so important because environments are built around how human beings interact and communicate with one another. And these environments can be detrimental to our health and they can be uh, helpful to our healing in this, you know, depending on how we approach the 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 research and wisdom that we are looking for in these in these um specific ways of interacting of humans interacting so just such an interesting um conversation all around with all of you um and i just think that we'll, we'll just finish off with one last question and it's a little bit of a, a an expanding again on this this social justice uh, issue that the conference is is based on that um, ma the madness and justice in, in mental health. If you were, and I'll rephrase it a little bit here, is like if you were to see art uh, playing uh, the ideal role in mental health institutions today, what do you think that would look like? What do you think that would be um, for each of your, your perspectives, in each of your perspectives? That needs a lot of deep thinking, I think, but the the instinctive answer I can come up with just give it over to the artist for a year and see how it goes. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. Very very general, but I think there is a big need of connecting with human beings. Uh, uh, I don't remember who said that. Unfortunately, uh, I forgot. But uh, someone said that. In our society, we see mental illness as a, as a problem, but probably in more traditional societies, um, people with such uh, uh, problems would be probably shamans or, uh, 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 yeah, some kind of people who works with healing, with dreaming, as Annika mentioned before, with art and uh, with therapy in the end. So... I think we should find a way to understand better what we call a mental issue and uh, um, work more at the core of our society because in the end this is only a problem of a society and uh, that just pops up as a problem of individual persons. But So I think that's that's what we really need. We need more connection between people in our society. That's probably what is most missing. I, I think um, this is a very interesting perspective regarding the fact that um, there is a very um, intense history of art and psychiatry. Um, so this history is very much marked by separation and discrimination and abusement there's this uh, psych yes psychiatric <laughs> not a very much um good for word, word for me <laughs> um and yes very much um marked by injustices and injured human rights so um the fact that artists with mental illnesses are now able to work artistically and every time we are working around mental conditions authentically and critically some kind of collectivistic healing process i think regarding this history um of psychiatry and and art um still the art market and the art industry suffers from problematic structures especially for marginalized groups um but um yeah i think there's so much potential for for inclusion, like in a wide understanding of inclusion, inclusion of all marginalized groups, not only people with disabilities and mental illnesses, but actually good for all of us. Um, this inclusion is fundamentally linked to human rights. So um, regarding all the potential art has for collaborative work, 
uh, I think there's a very big potential. Gosh, thank you so much, all of you, for being here with me today. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.